The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Rutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 17th. Today, the story of a woman in New Orleans whose life was upended by violence and how Russia used social media to influence the 2016 election. In cities across the United States, there are areas, little pockets of a couple neighborhoods or zip codes, where murders are common, but arrests for those murders are rare. Police talk about a lot of reasons for this, insufficient resources, poor relationships with residents, and the families of those people who were murdered, and even some police officers, they say that the fault rests with police departments that just don't care. But everybody agrees that these unsolved killings perpetuate a cycle of violence in ways that are tragic and shocking and also completely logical. For the next three days, we're bringing you stories from The Post's ongoing series, Murder with Impunity. Investigative reporter Cambrielle Kelly has reported on one woman's suffering when murders are left with few arrests, no convictions, and no justice. Cynthia Glover is withdrawn. She is withdrawn into her house. She doesn't like people to come to the house. She's afraid of going outside. She sleeps during the daytime. It's very hard for her to go to sleep at night. She's afraid that somebody might break into her house, might try to kill her, might try to kill her last remaining son. She spends her days mostly binge-watching movies. She has over 500 DVDs in her house. She goes in the living room and sits on the couch and watches her DVDs on TV. She's got these cast iron shutters. They're like turquoise colored. They're hurricane shutters as a result of Hurricane Katrina to protect her house. But she also feels like it keeps her safe because they're heavy. And so you can't really break into her windows. There's not a lot of light that comes into her house because of these shutters. And so she spends a lot of the day, you know, in darkness or in muted light. It's almost like this cocoon she believes can protect her from the outside world. But it also traps her. Let me tell you how I met Cynthia. For the last year, we've been working on what we're calling the Murder with Impunity Project. We've collected data from more than 50 major cities from across the country to determine whether killings actually resulted in an arrest. We put public records requests out. We ask for things like the date of the killing, whether the killing resulted in an arrest, the race of the individual who was the victim of the killing. It took us probably over a year to collect that data. And we put it all together and then began to analyze it to see what the pattern showed us. What we found in our reporting is that even in cities where 
by and large, police have been able to make an arrest. In most of the killings, there are pockets within those communities where the killings go unsolved. In some of these areas, if you commit a killing, your chances of being arrested are less than half. I mean, we're talking like 50-50. The numbers are one side of it, but what we really wanted to know was what was it like to live in these communities and what it was like constantly navigating their neighborhoods, knowing that if a killing or violence happened, that they may not get help. And that's where we found Cynthia Glover. Cynthia Glover is a 56-year-old woman from New Orleans, Louisiana. She loves to joke and laugh and talk about her children. You know, it's just my children just, they was the light of my life. They kept me going. And, you know, laugh is good for the soul. Mm-hmm. And when I look at them, all I can do is laugh. I say, Lord, have mercy. Whose children is this? <laughs> all of them did something to keep me laughing. And I had these little nicknames for them. Cynthia had four children. Her oldest, Dwayne, she calls Red. Her second child, Kendrell, she calls Cat. Her second son, Cornell, she calls Bacon. And her youngest child, Alfred, she calls Funny. And then I just love to kiss my children, just kiss, 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 kiss. Bacon would say, you're going to make my lips fall off. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband said, you... Treat these churn like these churn is glass, like they're going to break. Of Cynthia's four children, only one is still alive. Funny, who was the youngest, is in prison, which might explain why he's, he's still left. When you look at the arrest rates for killings in New Orleans, it's not that good. Only one in three killings actually results in an arrest. But Cynthia's neighborhood's even worse than the city's average. Since 2010, there have been 23 killings in the neighborhood that she lives in. And of those killings, only two resulted in charges. I met Cynthia after we launched the series. We actually put a question out to readers asking what their experience had been with the police. And she was one of the people that responded to us. That was back in July. And since then, we've talked several times over the phone, through text messages. I've gone down to New Orleans and visited her. If you were to describe each of your kids, what would you say about Red? (laughs) It would be his smile, because he always laughing. Always. What about Cat? He stayed with a smile. Cat? (laughs) Cat was just, she was a real piece of work. That sister there was something else. She had no sense of humor. I'm going to put it like that. She was always serious. Everything was serious with her. And I think that happened after they killed my my son, Dwayne. Because when my son got killed and she saw him out there on that ground, everything went serious with her. Her first son was killed in the 90s when she was living in public housing, and it was at Christmas. She and the kids had just finished decorating the Christmas tree. I was sitting at the table, fixing my Christmas decorations. And she had asked him to take out the garbage, and he said, 
he would, but he was going to go outside and, and visit a friend of his first. And my neighbor upstairs, he came and knocked on the door and told me my son was out there and that he was shot and he was dead. And she was like confused, right? But then another neighbor came down and said the same thing. And I when I got up and I come out and went through the breeze and there he was laying across the street in front of the high rise. And so that was the first killing. It prompted her to move. She's like, I need to take my three remaining children somewhere else. And so through a connection she knew of a house that was being sold in a different neighborhood, it was older residents, it's quiet. And so she decided she was going to raise her kids here. It was safe. And then Hurricane Katrina happened and she said the neighborhood changed. So you think Katrina made the neighborhood worse? Crime soared out of control. They started mixing all these all different lives of people together from different walks of life. Fast forward to 2013, her daughter went out dancing with her girlfriends and then somebody got killed outside of the nightclub. So the club goers, they come outside and they're looking and the police are like, can anybody ID this person who was killed? And so her daughter, Kat, She looks at the boy and she realizes that this is a kid that she went to preschool with. And Kat, being my child, saying, oh yeah, I know who that is. That's his mama name. I went to school with That's all she said. She allegedly did not identify the shooter. She wasn't there when it happened. Obviously, she was inside of the club. But a rumor started circulating in the neighborhood that Kat is a rat. Her mom got really worried. Is her life going to be in jeopardy? And two months later, Kat is killed in front of the church right behind the house. I hear the gunshots, and I'm sitting on the side of my bed with nothing on, just sitting there. I say, oh, my God, these people are there shooting. And she remembers hearing the shooting, thinking like, well, Lord, I say, somebody child been been shot. Not realizing at the time it was her kid. My child dead because she said just that little bit. She identified a dead man and it cost her her life. There's a cycle that starts. Police call it retaliation killings. And it's a cycle that if you don't make an arrest, then the killings continue to be perpetuated. And so now there's this rumor after Kat is killed that her brother is upset about it. And that because he's upset, he goes and puts a hit out on somebody else. You know, ever since Cat had got killed, I always had this sixth sense in me saying, I don't care if one of them go out that door, you go out that door behind And then just a year later, her second son is killed. And all you heard was, pow, pow, right in front of the house. Bacon's killing was the only one that resulted in an arrest. And that was because as he lay dying in the middle of the street, he is yelling out the name of the person who he said killed him to several people who are witnessing it. You know, police told me, and this is not just unique to New Orleans, but they have a hard time getting witnesses. I mean, Cynthia and her family even believed just the perception of being a rat had consequences for her family. And if they can't get somebody to come and be a witness, the case can't go to court. It can't go to trial. My husband ain't here. Okay. You know, when I went to her her house for the first time, she was just really nervous. 
for me being there. Now I'm going to show you what Dwayne got in. Oh, wow. So it makes well, it all dark. dark. Hmm? That's for hurricanes. Category 5. See, feel them. They eye. They cast eye. But then I found it interesting that when I was in a car with her, you know, it was just me and uh, our photographer and her alone. Once we were driving away out of the neighborhood, she wasn't crying and getting emotional the entire interview. But all of a sudden, when nobody was around and nobody was watching her, she just broke down crying. You know, I used to kiss my children a lot. My children said, all you want to do is just kiss us. My husband said, you act like them churning glass. They're going to break their work glass to me. To me, my children is dead. People lives go on. My life stopped. I used to like to go out, go to the mall with my girlfriend, go to the skate rink. I don't do none of that. If my girlfriend don't come over here and visit me, she'll never see me because I don't never come out of that house. I don't never come out of that house. That house stays in dog. My husband said, you're going to go crazy in here. I'm not coming out. And I don't want to leave here because I feel like I'm leaving my children behind. But if I stay here, they are going to die. My last child going to die here. And then I'm going to lay down and I'm going to die. You know, people will say, well, why can't she just move and go somewhere else? And, you know, they're not people with a lot of money and means that can just get up and relocate. And she says that, you know, where is she going to? How can she afford to move? Uh, where is she going to go? And so essentially they're, they're stuck. They're kind of shuttered in to this neighborhood and into this house. On a regular basis, she sees the people in the neighborhood who are rumored to have killed her kids, and she has to interact with them as if nothing has happened. But how do you continue to, to live in this neighborhood? And she's interacting with people and seeing them on a regular basis, people who she believes had something to do with her kids. Murders. No arrest. 20 years. 20 years. And nobody's in jail for killing my child. 20 years I lived with 20 years of my baby being dead. My daughter been dead five years. Ain't nobody in jail for killing her. Nobody. Nobody in jail. These people murdered my baby. They murdered my baby. And nobody did nothing. Nothing. Cynthia's story is a story of one person living in one zone in one city, but it reflects what's happening in all of the cities that we looked at across the country, where you have somebody that was murdered and where there was no justice. And you can find a story like Cynthia in every one of those cities. The system is broken. You got countless of mothers like me who have lost their children and nobody has done nothing. They ain't did nothing. They give you a candlelight vision. They let go of some butterflies and some balloons and feed you some cake. But at the end of the day, that don't change the fact. Your child ain't never coming back here. You don't come back from death. You don't come back from that. You know how hard that was for me to dig that hole and put my children in the dough, in the dough.
Our Murder with Impunity series continues tomorrow as we look at how two cities, Richmond and Indianapolis, handle homicide investigations. Craig Timberg sometimes describes his beat at the Post as technology behaving badly. Though to be fair, it's not the technology that's behaving badly. It's the people behaving badly with technology. And Craig's been focusing on how exactly Russia used social media to influence the 2016 election. We all first got a peek behind the curtain last February when special counsel Robert Mueller indicted 13 Russians who worked at the Internet Research Agency. But that was more about, like, who ran payroll and what the departments were. And then over the weekend, Craig and his colleague Tony Rahm got their hands on an unpublished Senate report about the so-called Russian troll farms that made things way more clear. It was immediately the most sweeping, comprehensive, detailed report that I had seen. It really kind of reverse engineers what the Russians were doing during the disinformation campaign. The report, one of two prepared for the Senate Intelligence Committee, was based on data provided by social media companies and then analyzed by five outside research groups. And one of the most interesting takeaways was this. The data showed that Russians specifically targeted Black Americans, trying to convince them to not vote for Hillary Clinton. In fact, African Americans were targeted with more Facebook ads than any other group, including conservatives. We didn't know that until this report became public. It was really sort of, you know, at last, we have this document that lays it out in sweeping, comprehensive terms and that points that other researchers, and in some cases these very researchers have made at other times, but now we finally have a sense of the full sweep. We have the actual data from the companies. We have the best researchers in the world on this stuff. And we have the Senate Intelligence Committee's stamp. They brought these firms in to do it. So it really, I was pleased to see discoveries that we had been tracking, you know, month by month for two years now, all put in one place and all put with a, you know, a sort of an official stamp that was impressive on it. And so what did these outside companies kind of conclude about the role that Russia played in the lead up to the election? They argue that this was all about electing Donald Trump. And while that seems a little obvious at this point, two years on, it has been a point that's been contested, particularly on the Republican side. And these researchers say, that the Russian campaign was about activating conservatives and suppressing the votes of liberals and particularly African-Americans. And so, you know, obviously they don't, you know, it's like they had microphones in the Russian offices as this was going on, but their analysis of the data is very clear. And it's frankly pretty hard to argue with that conclusion at this point. There's also a lot of new insight into how this worked across different platforms. You know, we tend to think about Twitter and Facebook, but, you know, YouTube ended up being hugely important, more than a thousand videos that the Russians posted on YouTube. What kinds of videos? You know, voter suppression videos, among others. I mean, a lot of the effort was put in keeping African-Americans from voting, saying things like, Hillary Clinton is just as bad as, as Donald Trump. What we need to do to show our power is to not vote, to boycott. Or there were messages like, you know, you can vote by text, which of course isn't true. So that's like a classic disinformation move to keep people from showing up at the polls. And were there any, like, definitive conclusions about whether this huge scope of disinformation and these YouTube videos and posts that were all created by these Russian trolls, whether that actually had an impact on the outcome of the election in 2016? So that's not a question they try to answer, but it's also not a question that 
you can answer in a scientific way. These are scientists. They're not political commentators. They're not, they're not talking heads. So there's no way that they or we could answer that question because in order to answer that question, you have to run the election again, you know, in some sort of parallel universe where this one factor was taken out. All I can say definitively is that it was a very close election and it's now clearer than ever that the Russians certainly tried very hard and in very sophisticated ways to affect the outcome. Whether they did, nobody knows. Even the Russians don't know that one. Is there an expectation that something will change because of this report? You know, I think it's fair to say that, the, again, the technical sophistication and focus from the U.S. government is higher than it was during the 2016 election. But, you know, there's been no legislation on this that's mattered. There's been no big public kind of White House-led effort on this. And so will the Senate Intelligence Committee be more aggressive about that as we head into the new Congress? Maybe. But, I mean, this Congress has not been able to do a whole lot for a, a while now, so I'm not super optimistic. What is your sense of whether Americans are still vulnerable now to this kind of disinformation? You know, in a way, the best thing that's happened since we started covering this story two years ago is that some people kind of get it, right? There's a somewhat higher level of skepticism about stuff that just rolls through your social media feed. And, and the people who study this for a living talk about the sort of inoculation effect of, of news coverage and research reports. And that's a good thing. And the social media companies are way more tuned into this and they're, you know, they've taken a beating and they've put real resources behind combating this, which they deserve some praise for. When you but say combating this, is, is that like, can they identify now who is in Russia and making up stories about things that are not true in the U.S.? Well, there's a lot of people who argue that they could have done that in 2016 as well. I mean, a lot of the Facebook ads were paid for in rubles, which might have tipped somebody off. And then there's also, there were IP addresses signed in from St. Petersburg, which was the, you know, the home of the world's best known Russian troll factory. So there's a lot of people who think the social media companies could have done way better in targeting this in 2016. But the reality is that they are doing better with technical means. They took down quite a few phony accounts that the Russians and the Iranians put up ahead of the congressional midterm. So they deserve some praise for that. But to kind of come back to your question, I mean, as long as we use social media, we're vulnerable to being manipulated over social media, right? I mean, these tools are just massively powerful and certainly more powerful, I think, than the people who created them really understood or that any of us understood when we started using Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, you name it, right? People just get a huge amount of the news information from these places. It gets shared by people they know and like and feel affinities with. And so the idea that you can slip something that's disinformation into that news and information ecosystem. It didn't take a genius to figure it out, but there's no reason to think that it's going to stop ever. On Monday, the NAACP said it was returning a recent donation from Facebook and is calling for a one-week boycott of Facebook and Instagram, which they say, quote, will signify to Facebook that the data and privacy of its users of color matter more than its corporate interests. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. If you liked what you heard on this episode, it would be great if you took a second to leave us a review or to tweet about the show with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.